Coming up this week on Sporting Journal Radio. Colorado just released five wolves. Let's let's run through your thought process here. Huh, they just rescued 35 people off. Hey, Jim, you want to take the airplane up to Red Lake and go land it on the lake and catch a walleye? So by the time I'm ready to shoot them when they're four or five years old, I've got a pretty good you know, understanding of what those deer do. I fish, I hunt, and always will. Broadcasting from the Alclair Outdoor Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. We're not just a radio show anymore. This is Sporting Journal Radio. That's right. Welcome to the show. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in on the network by demand or by watching this on YouTube. That's Dan Amundsen over there. Dan, how you doing? Good. How are you? Merry Christmas, everybody. Ah, Merry Christmas. I can't believe it's Christmas already. Yeah, it's uh, it's that time. It's December 25th week. So yeah, it is that time. I don't know where I was going with that. I really kind of just started saying words for the sake of saying words. <laughs> We're trained professionals, ladies and gentlemen. Do not try this at home. No David Eckhart this week. Where'd he go? I don't know. He's not here. I guess he decided to work today at his real job or something. I'm not quite sure. But What does he do in the uh, winter? Not quite sure. I don't either. Hmm. Well, oh, I clicked on David's tab. That's what popped up. Okay. <laughs> it's just an empty chair over there. Well, no, it's my face still. Oh, different cam- camera two. Yeah. Camera one, camera two. Sure. Camera one, camera two. R- riveting start to this show. Some really interesting things taking place in the outdoor world this week. We're going to talk about somebody trying to land a plane on Red Lake to go ice fishing. Huh? Glad everyone is okay. First thing I'll say right there. Uh, We're also going to talk about the release of wolves in Colorado and what that might mean, what that could do to the economy, what that could mean for hunting in Colorado, what that could mean for arguably the number one destination for elk hunters in the United States. It's uh, it's a big, big thing. Uh, We've got uh, some cool stuff lined up here for you. Joe Henry's going to join us. Also, I'll talk to Danny Thompson from Garmin about why he likes to deer hunt so much. First though, Dan, who is who are who are the sponsors this week on the show? Live Target. Match the hatch at LiveTargetLures.com. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital of the world. Plan an ice fishing trip this winter at LakeOfTheWoodsMN.com. Haybill Heights Campground and Resort. Book a trip to Devil's Lake this winter. Learn more at HaybillHeights.com. Otter Tail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at OtterTailLakesCountry.com and Prairie Sportsman. The new season starts in January. Watch episodes anytime though at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. Did you, you gonna be all right there? That was a lot of a lot of words. Yeah, not as not as much air. All right, um, we got a brand new North American Waterfowl podcast episode available on our YouTube channel, also at SportingJournalRadio.com. We talked to Nick Dawkin. He's a researcher in Alaska. He bans a lot of waterfowl. He's got one of the wildest stories I've heard of a banded bird that he personally banded and then personally encountered again in Arkansas. So he put a neck collar on it in Alaska. And then saw it again in Arkansas. I'm not going to give away how he saw it in Arkansas or what the encounter was like. You'll have to listen to the podcast. Download it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Or if you're on our YouTube channel right now, just look for it in our videos right down here uh, below. Check it out. And if you got a crazy band story and uh, you want us to talk about it on the North American Waterfowl podcast, uh, get a hold of us and let us know. Dan, somebody listened to uh, one of our shows last week. And emailed us and said he's got a band, a waterfall band from 1940. No way! I didn't. That's what I said. I didn't even know they were banned in birds back in the 40s. So 
I don't know anything more than that. We're going to try to get to the bottom of it and uh, talk about it on the North American Waterfowl Podcast. So check it out. Uh, another rescue on Red Lake. Well, uh, which one? Yeah, there's a couple of them, I guess. Um, air, air airplane or just the four? You know, your normal ice fisherman on a four wheeler and side by side or walking. I mean, I don't. Obviously, the person that crashed the plane feels bad about the situation. Does Again, he though? I don't know. I'm glad they're okay, but they're not driving. I don't know what the, those planes weigh, but they're not. They're not driving out there. They're barely letting. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was all foot traffic, or do they have ATVs? There's been ATVs going, but even so, I would I would assume a Cessna, whatever kind of Cessna it was. I know it was a Cessna. Here, I'm pulling up the Facebook post. Uh, probably weighs more than your standard Honda Foreman Rancher or whatever you've got for a four wheeler. Can you see what kind of Cessna it is? I'm okay. trying to find it. I'm all right. Looking at the post now. Twenty three hundred. So I don't know which model this is, but we're looking at twenty three hundred to twenty five hundred pounds probably. Um, so that's probably a little bit too much for two inches of ice. Well, and let's be fair, he didn't really plan on landing on the two inches of ice. It sounds like. But either way, there uh, 35 people had been rescued off the lake like a day before this. So let's let's run through your thought process here. Huh, they just rescued 35 people off. Hey, Jim, you want to take the airplane up to Red Lake and go land it on the lake and catch a walleye? <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, man. A Cessna 172 Skyhawk. Skyhawk empty weighs almost 1,700 pounds. So even, yeah, I don't know. How many people were rescued? Well, uh, out of the airplane or the first rescue? The first rescue. 35. 35. At least. Did we hear, I mean, any details? I just heard they were rescued. Did we Do we know any of the details? That obviously, a crack opened up and widened. I'm sure that that's what happened. I don't know. I, there's not really too many more details you can go into on these kind of stuff. I mean, there's not. The thing with these ice rescues is unless somebody falls through the ice, there's not a whole lot of technical work going on maybe they had an airboat maybe they didn't or they were just pulling people across in the little lifeboat thing there's there's really like it, it always makes a headline but there's not when it's just ice that floats away there's not always a whole lot of excitement there might be a guy or two in the water guiding that boat across which is cold um other than that it's it's not fun it's a lot of work for a fire department or rescue teams but it's uh it's not super exciting when you're the guy standing on the ice and I can tell you from experience. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to make fun of the people too much that had to be rescued because somebody, there's two people in this room, and one of us had to be rescued uh, a couple years ago. Yeah. Without saying any names. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. It wasn't, like in hindsight, yeah, probably shouldn't have gone with the heavy winds. I, to be honest, didn't look at the forecast that day to see there were heavy winds, and that's what blew it open. But what's getting frustrating is... This has been a, and it's, I shouldn't even say, I'm frustrated. I have no reason to be frustrated. I have no stake in Red Lake. I'm not going up there. But all of us have been sitting at home looking at this weird start to winter we've had. It's been yeah. warm. It's the ice is doing this and that. You've already seen a lot of posts from the resorts on Red saying, you know, they have to close down for a few hours or a few days to fix their access. And that's good. They're doing a good job of that. But okay, so you get the day where you're going to have, you already have weird ice. Now you get a day with a heavy northwest wind. Maybe say, hey, if we're on the north side, let's not go out. Like, all of I think I said to a few people that day, 
down here, if there are people ice fishing on our local lake, they're going to have to get rescued because, yeah. you know, we went pheasant hunting along the lake. And how quickly did that ice open up? And I know that's further south, but it opened it's, up. It's common sense. It opened up a lot. And I went back there two days later to see how much more it opened. And it was uh, it was astronomical how much that lake had opened up. Yeah. And, and I know we're four hours south, so we're warmer. We don't have as much ice. But the, the idea is still the same. Look at a satellite image, at least as of this recording. There's still plenty of pockets of open water. Clearly, there's spots with really thin ice. Like, let's start using our heads here a little bit and learn from the past. And Yeah, it's not worth it for no. fish. And, and you can, again, I feel like I'm a big hypocrite saying this because I was one of those guys. I was young and stupid and did that, got excited about going and catch fish. And But yeah, let's say uh, we learned. You, I mean, we learned, and so check, check your weather, check your wind, and... I hate to try to point fingers at resorts, but maybe people are opening their accesses. I don't, that's always a fine line. I don't know if, if people who open their accesses should be held liable because at the end of the day, it's the it's angler's choice water, to go. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's maybe, maybe you don't need that $10 so bad, maybe, or jack the price of your beer up a little bit. It wouldn't be like we wouldn't even be at this point if it didn't happen every year, it seems like. At least in recent years, I feel like it's been happening every year. Yep. And history repeats itself. But learn, learn, people, learn, pay attention, think about these things. And, and I honestly, I hate to say this. This is going to sound terrible. But you know why people, I think why people haven't necessarily learned a lesson? It's because nobody's gotten hurt. Yeah. Nobody's died. So they think, you know, the average guy, think, okay, what's going to stop me from doing that again? What's the worst that happens to me? I have to leave early. I get a kind of a cool experience. I get to take a picture with rescue teams and airboats out here. It's kind of fun. It's going to make a cool post on social media. Well, maybe maybe they need to be charged what that rescue costs. Yeah, and I think, I don't know how it works at Red. And I a lot of rescue crews are different. You've hear, heard stories of people at Lake Superior um, that either have to leave their gear or like the first time they get rescued, it's free. If it happens again, they have to pay. I don't know how it works at Red. Um, that time I was there, I was never told of any charge. But to be fair, we didn't call any rescue team. We were on the ice and uh, someone came out and got us. So I don't know who who called or who reported the incident or what happened there. So I don't know how it works up there. Again, every crew is different. Um, and that goes for any crew across the country. You're going to have different department standards, this and that. So I really don't know how, how it works. But, yeah, maybe they need to be charged. Maybe they need this and that. And it's well, un no. unfortunate to say someone might get hurt, and then people might listen, learn their lessons after it's too late. If you know the answer to that, comment below. Yeah. Let us know. And know this, now that Dan's on the fire department here, if somebody were to get stranded, he might. You, I don't know if you'd be involved in that rescue or not, but people obviously are. And now you're putting their lives at, potentially at risk in a in – a, could be – bad situation so think about it. just be smart about it i mean i know i'm i'm over cautious when it comes to ice fishing um a lot of that stems from the fact that i like to hunt until until the hunting seasons are over and usually by then we have pretty almost drivable ice uh this year may be an exception but uh just be smart and be careful out there and we're glad everybody is okay uh from the multiple rescues on red lake all right we got to take a quick break i want to talk about this wolf release in colorado they just released five wolves into colorado it's it's a big deal you might say oh five wolves big deal we got 2800 3000 4000 of them here in minnesota 
we're going to talk about what could happen in Colorado based on what's happened here, what's happened in um, Yellowstone. Uh, all that plus uh, Joe Henry and Danny Thompson coming up on Sporting Journal Radio. Live Target, the leader in Match the Hatch, is back with new lures that also match the action. Introducing the Live Craw. The Live Craw is irresistible to bass, walleye, and other freshwater species. FTEX winner, the ultimate frog, looks and acts just like a swimming frog. With an exposed ultra point mustad hook and replaceable legs, the ultimate frog has two styles, two sizes, and eight colors. And ICAST and FTEX winner, the Live Shrimp, mimics a fleeing shrimp for saltwater anglers. Coming soon from Live Target. Ice fishing season is here. This winter, plan a trip to Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Not only will you have the chance to catch their legendary perch, but this year, Haybell Heights has been catching big walleye after big walleye. And they're doing it from a mobile, comfortable snow bear. No matter how cold it is outside, you're warm and toasty on the inside. Learn more and book a trip today at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. We're back, Sporting Journal Radio. Thanks for tuning in right here, wherever you're getting this or watching this on YouTube. I'm Brett Amundsen, along with Dan Amundsen. Colorado just released five wolves as part of a reintroduction effort. It's three years in the making. In 2020, voters narrowly passed a ballot initiative allowing wolves to be reintroduced into Colorado. is 51% to 49%. So pretty slim uh, margin of victory there in Colorado. And they released these five wolves. It was a, a majestic sight if you talk to some of the people that were there. I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's the first voter-mandated reintroduction of the endangered species in the United States. And I just, I don't understand it. There, some people are saying it's, it's cru one biologist that was there said it was a crucial, I wish I could find it, the quote here now. Oh, this is a moment of rewilding. So if you remember the conversation we had with the Sportsman's Alliance last week, that's what he talked about was rewilding. They're working to rewild the entire United States and what that effect that's going to have in, in a sense that's going to reduce the game populations that we have which is going to reduce the interest in hunting and to me that's the number one goal here according to this biologist though this rewilding is doing something to stave off the biodiversity extinction crisis we are living in to make a difference in this era of extinction let's be clear wolves are not extinct okay there are wolves are not extinct they may not be in Colorado like they were 100 years ago, but a lot of animals aren't. And that's just the way things are going to work as, as human evolution takes place and the world changes and wildlife adapts to their surroundings. Do I want to see wolves extinct? No, of course not. But let's be clear here. You're just going to create a bunch of negative situations. Let's, let's break some things down. According to the Colorado State University Extension, uh, elk and mule deer would be the primary prey of these Colorado wolves. Over 430,000 mule deer live in the state. Colorado also supports over 280,000 elk, the largest elk population of any state. Now, I'll be curious to see what those numbers look like in 10 years. When wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone, the elk population went from around 20,000 to 5,000 in just a few years. It changed the ecosystem that's still being researched today. It's increased the beaver population since willows aren't being browsed on as much anymore. So that's changing the way the waterways work. There are, there are some environmental benefits to that. There's obviously going to be some negative impacts to that as well too. 
Wolves were once the most widely distributed land mammal worldwide. Today, they inhabit parts of North America, Europe, and Asia. Um, as long as people tolerate them, wolves can persist in reg- regions with many people. As long as people can tolerate them, that's a key takeaway there. Since most people don't live where wolves are, of course they can tolerate them because they don't have to deal with them on a daily basis. A lot of wolves live in Minnesota. We have 5.6 million people here, whatever it is. For, for comparison, Colorado has 5.8 million people. Colorado's population is heavily concentrated in the front range with only about 10% of the residents living in the western slope. That's where the wolves are going to be. So 10% of nearly 6 million people have to deal with what 90% of the state doesn't have to deal with. And the majority of the people in that state just voted for that 10% to have to live with wolves. Another comparison, over 11,000 wolves live in Europe, including near large cities. This is about twice as many wolves as the 6,000 that now live in the lower 48 of the U.S. This is according to Colorado State Extension still. Um, and what's hunting like in Europe now? The big game animals. It's not like it once used to be. Sweden, Norway, and Finland in 2022 just had major hunting seasons to reduce the wolf population. The reduction is to maintain population goals and reduce negative human interactions such as big game predation, hunting dog kills, and other factors. Now, with Colorado releasing these wolves, what does that mean for the Colorado economy? Well, in a 2016 article in the Post-Independent newspaper in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, they get two more than 250,000 licensed elk hunters. More than 10,000 of them will hunt just in this local area where this newspaper's from. Elk hunting is Colorado's top big game draw. They have a 22% success rate. Mule deer hunters have a 50% success rate. They sell more big game licenses in Colorado than they do in any other state. They harvest more elk than any other state. In 2016, 9 $119 million went into Colorado from hunters. So you reduce that elk population. I don't know if it would be as dramatic as what the reduction in Yellowstone would be, but you're talking about millions and millions of dollars that could disappear from Colorado's economy. Together, hunting and fishing in Colorado bring three and a quarter billion dollars. Hunting and fishing also support more than 25,000 full-time jobs across the state. License fees from hunting and fishing also support jobs and conservation and allow Colorado's conservation programs to operate without reliance on tax funding. Could you imagine if all those wealthy people in Colorado all of a sudden had to pay taxes to support all these things that hunters and anglers pay for now? Things would come to a halt in a hurry. So if the elk population were to drop almost 75% like it has in Yellowstone, after the reintroduction of wolves in Colorado, there's going to be a huge economic impact, loss of jobs, loss of tourism, and a lot of unhappy hunters and business owners. Small towns might disappear, which ultimately is what a lot of these people that are against hunting want. They want everyone to live in big cities where, ironically, they're probably doing more damage to the environment. So we have to be aware of what's going on in these other states. Obviously, we're well aware of what's going on in wolves in Minnesota. So uh, this thing that just took place in Colorado. Yeah, they brought wolves in from Oregon. <laughs> if you're watching this on YouTube right now. Oh, Sam Soulhold is brilliant. <laughs> That's hilarious. Man, I'm so glad I don't live in Colorado. Hmm. 
All right. Uh, real quickly, before we move on here, I want to talk about Pheasants Forever. I just want to thank Pheasants Forever for using one of my photos on their latest issue of the Journal of Upland Conservation. See if I can show this without the glare. Some hen pheasants uh, flying through the snow during the winter, flying into a food plot. Thank you very much, Pheasants Forever. Um, I had a few people s disagree with my praise for this conservation organization and their justification for their dissatisfaction was buying land, selling it to the state, and then reducing the property taxes that were going to the local communities with the state purchasing these properties. So I, I dug into it because I, I don't want to see local economies lose money. And one could argue that having the state hunting grounds brings new money into the area as well. But what it also does is it brings in PILT payments. So payment in lieu of taxes. Now, what does that mean? When, when Minnesota buys property and be, uh, designates it a wildlife management area, they pay money to the county in lieu of those taxes. And they usually, uh, one, one quote I got was there, 98% of the cases, they're paying more money than what the local taxes would have been. For example, 2015, 70 acres was purchased in Stearns County. The PILT payments were $1,355. The tax payments the previous year were $645. So Stearns County received $710 more from the PILT payment than they did from property taxes. So um, there you go. PILT payments, probably going to bring in more to the economy. Plus, you can increase your tourism base to that local area as well, bringing more money, more jobs, and benefiting businesses in those small town areas. All right, we're going to talk fishing. We're going to talk enough about money and politics and all that stuff. We're going to talk about ice conditions at Lake of the Woods, how the fish are biting, and deer hunting with Danny Thompson all on the way. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Looking for winter adventure? Might as well pick a place with over 1,000 lakes. Ottertail County, Minnesota is in the middle of everywhere, offers a simpler pace, and has something for everyone. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Now we're going to head up to Lake of the Woods, check in with Joe Henry, get a, a fishing report and an ice conditions report with Joe from Lake of the Woods Tourism. How's it going, Joe? Hey, Brett, I'll tell you what, it has begun for most. That's good to hear because where we're at down here, and it's right, we're right kind of on the border of the southern and central part of the state, and it's not good. I, in fact, I wouldn't ice fish in a lot of places. If I was going to ice fish now, I would go to Lake of the Woods. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, we, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm pretty consistent. I preface this by saying, you know, there's a lot of Lake of the Woods. It's a big pond and ice conditions vary. We got, we got open water in a couple spots yet, and we got 12 inches of ice on some areas. But I can tell you this, where our resorts and outfitters are going out, 
the ice that they're marking and using. If, if they say it's good to go, it's good to go. Stay on the trails. Don't veer off. Don't go further out than they say stop, you know, because maybe ice conditions past that mark aren't ready. But I'll tell you something. Fishing, I had one resort say, fishing's better this year as starting out than it's been since we've seen since 2005. Now, wow. across the board, we're getting very, very, very good fishing reports. You know, I don't, you know, if you don't want to take it from the tourism director uh, to jump on Facebook and look at some of the Lake of the Woods reports, I mean, it's just, there are a lot of fish being caught. Saugers, walleyes, nice walleyes, um, a lot of action, you know, mainly, mainly eater fish. Boy, some big saugers this year too, you know, some real nice saugers that, you know, that 14 inch variety, pretty common. So we're excited about our start, and we think that's going to lead to a really good ice fishing year overall. Um, those fish are in the basin. We knew that they were there this fall. We thought the early ice was going to be really good because those fish are staged out in front of the south shore in many different locations. There's also a whole bunch of emerald shiners that are holding them there. And sure enough, once we got our houses out to them, you know, uh, those fish are there, and it's game on. It's been really good. Well, uh, it's good to hear that and hearing about eaters too. I know sometimes you can catch, particularly later in the year, you can catch a lot of fish, but sometimes they're not, you know, maybe you're catching some of the smaller sized ones. So to, to hear, I, I'd be, I'd be all about finding some eaters up there, Joe. Well, I tell you what, uh, I'm all about, you know, first off right now, I think everybody has an itch to go ice fishing because it's been a long time for most. They haven't been out. Many people haven't been out yet. Secondly, when you can get the kind of action you can on Lake of the Woods where you can catch, dozens and dozens of fish you know and of course i preface that by saying obviously <laughs> you got to be on the fish but boy i'll tell you those fish that must there must be a lot of fish out there because they're catching fish across that whole south shore i mean uh it's just amazing how many fish are being caught right now and you know what uh there are a lot of fish in lake of the woods they estimate there's 10 million walleyes and you know there's times you go out there and you don't catch the, the walleyes like you want to it's like where in the heck are these fish are they are they out deeper are, did they swim over to Canada? Ah, they're somewhere because, man, they're, they're out in front right now. At least a lot of them are. If you were going up there right now, Joe, to fish, what's what's going to be tied on to your ice rod? You know, I'll tell you what. First off, we always talk about in Minnesota, you can use two lines for ice fishing. So I'm going to use the one-two punch. One line jigging line, one line dead sticking. I'm probably going to start my dead stick line with a plain red hook. I'm going to use about a number but a number six, maybe a number four octopus hook red. I'm just above it, I'm gonna put a split shot. And then either I'm gonna use one of those ice buster bobbers, I think, um, one of those foam bobbers, and I'm gonna cut it so that it fits the jig and the sinker, or the hook and the sinker just perfectly. So it's just a little bit above the water. So anything breathes on that thing, I'm gonna be able to tell. The other thing I've been doing lately with my dead stick is not using a bobber at all. I've been using a, uh, the bobber stop to mark the water level where I want to set it, but then I set my rod either on the floor of the fish house or I set it on a bucket, and I use a flexible tip so I can see that minnow moving that tip. And if that that tip just stops, a lot of times I'll lift up. If there's weight, I'll set that hook, and I catch a lot of fish I otherwise wouldn't have gotten. That's my dead stick. On my jigging line, what I'm going to start out with is probably a rapple or rip and wrap. I'm going to rip a rip and wrap, probably a number four rip and wrap, uh, pink uh uh, uh, pink glow fire tiger uh, pink uv fire tiger glow uh, i might try the gold i might try the chrome blue but uh i'm gonna, I'm gonna rip one of those initially um if those fish are down there uh mo i'm gonna get i'm gonna get some action the other thing that does is that pulls a lot of fish under that fish house 
then in tune, if they don't want to hit something active like a rip and wrap, they might slide over and hit my dead stick, or they might hit somebody else in the fish house who's using a traditional jigging spoon with a minnow head or a piece of minnow tail. My second choice would be a jigging spoon with a piece of minnow on it. Either I use the head, I use a piece of the tail, maybe I'll use a half. I rotate from using a piece of fat head to a piece of emerald shiner. Sometimes it makes a difference, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm going to be jigging that uh, in the strike zone. To me, the strike zone is going to be anywhere from six inches off the bottom all the way up to two feet. I'll be jig, jig, and let it sit. Jig, jig, let it sit. I'll be watching my electronics. If they're not reacting to that, I'm going to change the size of the spoon, the color of the spoon. I'll go from a rattle to a no rattle. I'm going to work with other people in the fish house as well. And we're going to work together to figure out what those walleyes want today. And we're going to hone in on them to figure out how, what's the bite. What do they want? What's their tendencies? And then we're going to hone in and catch a bunch of fish. You know, I usually don't get excited about ice fishing until after the, the first of the year, mostly because it's still hunting season. And I like to get as much hunting in as I can. And a lot of times I miss that early ice bite because usually by the time I start ice fishing, I can drive a truck out on, on the lakes. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case this year. In fact, I bought a snowmobile for ice fishing. What did I buy that, Dan? Three years ago? I don't know. Something like that. Have not used it for ice fishing yet because either we, we haven't, or pretty much every year I've been able to drive a truck about the time that I can I start ice fishing. So I don't know, Joe, with, with things being a little late, uh, particularly in other parts of the state, but up at Lake of the Woods, it's probably a little bit of a later start too. Do you think that early ice bite will last a little bit longer this year? Oh, I do. I think there's a lot of fish out there. And I think that we're going to have good fishing. I think it's going to be good ice fishing year overall. But I also think that that bite's going to last pretty darn good. And, uh, you know, I think that right now I would say this. If you got listeners who normally don't go up early ice, if there's any way that you could slide away and get that bonus ice fishing trip in, uh, this might be the year to do it. Uh, we do have openings early ice just because things don't always get booked. Um, solid as they normally do. People don't know ice conditions and the resorts are tentative to book too too much because they don't know if there's going to be ice. But I'll tell you right now, what I would consider is if you can get that extra trip in, I don't say this often, right now is a very good time to go. You know when your buddies call you and say, all right, man, it's time. Mm -hmm. You got to get up there. Right now would probably be one of those times I'd say if you can get that extra trip in. And you know what? Get a hold of a resort. You know, you bring up your, your, your bucket of jiggle sticks and uh, tackle in one bucket bring up your electronics in another bucket, go up there and stay at a resort and have at her. Most of the resorts are, are will shuttle, uh, shuttle you in heated ice uh, transportation out to a heated fish house. It's on the fish. The holes are drilled. You step into 70 degrees. Pretty easy peasy. They'll even clean the fish for you. If you want to bring up your ATV, your side-by-side, -side, your snow machine, just make sure that you locate one of the outfitters or resorts that allowing that's allowing that kind of equipment to go out on their ice trail or their ice road and then make, and make a game plan. And uh, there's a lot of ways to do it, but safety first, and then, of course, the walleyes and sagers second. The 12-year-old in me will always laugh when you say jiggle sticks, Joe. <laughs> that probably dates myself. I'll tell you, you know, and I'm sure you have a lot of listeners that are probably the same way. You know, when I was, when I was growing up, when I was in junior high and high school and I'd go out there ice fishing, what I would have given to have some of the ice clothing we have, to have yeah. a one-man flip-over shelter, to have a, a small heater that you can press a button and have heat. You know, I can remember getting permission to use my, my brother's Coleman lantern. And I'd stay out at the cabin with him. And I'd get up at dark 30 and I'd go to the garage and I'd pull that Coleman lantern out and I'd make sure it's pumped up and full of gas the night before, but I'd, I'd fire that thing up. And that was always a little tricky too. You light that match, you get it up there first and you turn that 
a quarter turn and all of a sudden, you know, if it's not spitting real good, all of a sudden, whoosh, that thing will fire up, you know, and, and then you, you adjust that lantern and I'd walk out on that dark lake by myself and I'd have to drill a hole by hand. And then I'd be sitting there sometimes 10 below zero, sometimes zero. And I'd be sitting there with one hole jigging away. And I'd tell you how cold my hands would get. I'd constantly have to clear the ice. Look at where we've come. And you wonder why ice fishing has become such a popular activity in the winter. I mean, now it's, you know, it's just so different. Even even our resorts, Brett, up at Lake of the Woods, why, why are there so many sleeper houses available to people now? Back in the day, they had oil burner oil burners, you know, furnaces for, for the, and they were very unreliable. How could you put people way out on Lake of the Woods with a somewhat unreliable heater? And then on top of it, you didn't have cell phones. If something went wrong, now you can just make a phone call and somebody's out, out there helping you right away. I mean, it just, it's so different and it's different in a good way, but I, I'm kind of dating myself, Brad. I don't know if you remember those days, but man, I'll tell you, I still think my one thumb gets kind of cold quick because uh, of me freezing it back then. Oh yeah. The, the original, uh, ice shacks or ice fishing houses with structures the plastic bucket <laughs> the five yeah. gallon bucket the original ice fishing chair all right joe um bef- before we let you go here do you have any words of wisdom for young daniel <laughs> what's well, a young daniel he uh l- luckily he's a he's a good kid to begin with so he's got that well, good base but you know yellow's yeah. yellow's try to yellow's try to save time for somebody you know and you know, Danny, one thing I would say is, uh, you, you know, when, when, when you're in the business world, Danny, you know, one thing you got to think about is that, you know, that the saying logic tells emotion sells, not that you're trying to sell people all the time, but just know something when you're trying to get your point across, you can explain things as much as you want. You're going to have a very educated prospect, but it, people act on emotion. When you get them emotionally attached, Danny, that's when things really happen. You keep that in your back pocket, you're going to become even more successful than you are today. So if I just start having tears roll down my start eyes, crying. you'll give me money? <laughs> That's <laughs> is, what I'm hearing. Well, I tell you what, I got a feeling like you could probably uh, generate some good money just with that mustache you got. I don't know if, if, if listeners haven't, if listeners haven't logged on to see Danny's mustache, it's worth the price of admission just to log on to a, it's free. a Facebook page or a YouTube <laughs> channel just to check out that stash. Danny, honest to goodness, oh, you must be getting some positive comments on that mustache right now. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> to say I haven't received any monetary bonuses because of it yet. <laughs> so I, I'll put my Venmo on the screen here or in the comments so people can Venmo me if you want. It's Christmas time. It's the season of giving. I'll shed a tear if you do. There you go. Emotion hey, sells. You, you got to be darn proud, though. I mean, you take a look at your staff, you know, and. I mean, uh, you know, be, being that you're putting a lot of these interviews now on video, I mean, you got to be darn proud. I'm re- rethinking that decision. <laughs> hey, well, hey, Danny, well, well said by your uncle, right? Yeah, you and I, Joe, you want to start your own radio show with me, a video podcast? Uh, all right, Joe, uh, thank you for the words of wisdom for young Daniel. Where should people go if they want to book a trip to Lake of the Woods? You know what? Hey, all the information, all the resorts, et cetera, are on our website, and that is lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Lake of the Woods, the walleye capital of the world, is calling out to you. From the northwest angle to the south shore and rainy river, this is the Midwest's number one ice fishing destination. Walleye, sauger, perch, northern pike, and eel powder. 
The fishing on Lake of the Woods is like a world of its own. Experience the most amazing fishing through one of the many full-service resorts featuring heated fish houses, ice transportation, meal plans, and sleeper fish house options. For more information, go to lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, Danny, how's it going? It's going. Yeah. <laughs> how's your deer season been? It's been kind of, I mean, I've had a good deer season. I was able to shoot a nice buck down in Texas and I was able to shoot a real nice buck in Minnesota. Um, wasn't able to get anything in Wisconsin this year, but despite getting two nice deer, it was kind of a rough season. It just didn't seem like the deer were moving. Um, October seemed to be pretty good. There was some pretty good movement around Halloween. Um, we did have one good cold front early October that got them moving, but just not a lot of good encounters this year. I mean, I think I seen two shooters and I, and I shot them. So it was, it was pretty slow. What got you into deer hunting? I've been deer hunting my whole life. You know, I grew up in Minnesota. Um, you know, my parents were into it. My dad was a big deer hunter. And so I just wanted to be a, uh, in with the guys. And, you know, we'd go out hunting ever since I was just little and took me up to my great grandpa's farm and down to my grandma's farm and just kind of always been into it and always been something that I just been super passionate about and just kind of love to do. Um, you know, so much great opportunity around Minnesota and whatnot to be able to do it. So that was kind of the, the start of it for me. You started by going to Carlos Avery? No, actually, I hunted a lot of public ground. I, I duck hunted in Carlos Avery a lot, um, did a lot of hunting there. I did start bow hunting in Carlos Avery, actually, but um, getting into deer hunting would have been like my first hunts were on public ground, um, kind of a little bit everywhere. We hunted around, you know, central Minnesota, a lot of up north stuff, you know, and then um, was hunting on a friend of my dad's land for a long time and then finally just decided, okay, I want, I want some ground of my own. Yeah, and then you started off by just leasing some ground? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was young, had kids young, and wanted a place to hunt. I was living kind of in southern Minnesota and wanted to find a place to hunt, so I was just kind of looking around at every option and found a lease, actually, down in southeast Minnesota that was kind of a last minute thing. They wanted to get at least for the season, so the price was right, and um, kind of started out there, and um, actually leased there for a long time, I think. I mean, I even still kind of go down there, and I had that lease for 15 years, probably. Um, so really enjoyed it, shot a lot of great bucks there. Um, you know, good hunting, obviously, in Southeast Minnesota, but even still, just kind of always had that desire to kind of own my own piece and really kind of live by my own rules. You've hunted all over uh, and started managing some property, Northwest, Northern Minnesota, Central Minnesota, Southeast, Wisconsin. Uh, what What is it about that Southeastern Minnesota area that you like so much? You know, when I first started hunting Southeast Minnesota, we had APR, so there's an antler point restriction. Um, there was no party hunting. And they just really, the landscape, you know, it's very fertile, a lot of good agriculture down there. And it just really kind of lent itself to shooting some big bucks. And I mean, I shot my largest buck to date, 170 inch deer with a bow down there, a lot of other nice deer. And they're just there because there's a good population of them. Um, you know, it was managed, you know, in a way where you could get a lot of does, but also had the opportunity at a nice buck. So it was just such a great area to go down and hunt. And plus the, the scenery of the driftless zone is just second to none. You take that scenery, you take some quality deer management, and you've got the topography deer-like, they can hide, they got the hills, they got the draws, the trees, and then all that ag around it, they got plenty of food. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it just it's just a, a combination for growing big deer. 
Yeah, it's a neat area down here. Um, do you remember your first buck? First good buck? <laughs> Oddly enough, like, and I think that's what drives me to deer hunt so much now is my first good buck. I mean, I didn't get a rack buck, you know, more than a spike or a forkhorn, probably till I was in college. I would say probably around 2008 was probably my first deer that was worthy of really putting on a plaque. You know, um, we didn't do Euro mounts back then, but um, that was probably my first good buck. And then um, once I started hunting the Southeast, I was able to, to kind of harvest a few nice ones. And uh, you brought your kids out to hunt a little bit too? Yep, so obviously, you know, like now that I've got two daughters and you know, they want to be with me out in the woods and whatnot, so kind of make it a family affair and the kids love to come down. We love shed hunting. Um, both my daughters have been hunting. My oldest actually has shot two nice bucks now. Um, so she's she's been pretty lucky. My youngest wasn't able to see anything this year. It was kind of, like I said, kind of a rough year this year, but um, you know, she's excited to get back after it next year. You've taken a lot of steps to try to improve deer hunting on your properties uh, from having comfortable stands for your young daughters to hunt out of to uh, planting food plots and, and managing the property. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, my background kind of is, I, I went to the University of Minnesota for natural resource management. So I've always kind of had an interest in that. And I, I love the deer hunting part, but I think I really like the management and the, the, you know, just conservation part of hunting, maybe even more so than shooting a deer. And it's kind of cool, you know, when you, when you, you know, see a, uh, project that I do through and you can kind of see the results of it you know where I'm sitting on a nice edge that I made next to a hinge cut or something like that with a food plot right over my shoulder and you get a nice buck that walks through and it's like to me that's kind of the success right there you just you see it happen and but also see everything else that it does for the landscape which I think is really cool because I mean I've got red fox I've got more rabbits around we've seen some rough grouse here with some of the timber management that's gone on and just you know kind of the entire ecosystem ecosystem that you know being a deer hunter you can grow big deer and make the habitat better for them but in reality you're making it better for everything you've seen some of those big deer up close when you're not hunting yeah yeah you know especially on this property i think the opportunity for some really big deer is here and um you know i had a really big one um well over 200 inches that was close by this year another really good one um eight pointer that was around <laughs> unfortunately both of them are are gone now but um you know i've definitely able to see some big bucks you know hunting minnesota too it's a big property so there's a lot of deer that live on that property just because it's so expensive and able to see a lot obviously i shot one of the good ones but you know seen a lot more there as well it's fun to be able to take a piece of land put some food plots in maybe cut some trails try to manage it for the wildlife there particularly deer of course and then have cameras set up so you can you can pick and choose and know what deer are there go yep we want to give that one another year no nope, that one's a shooter this year and then hunt that specific deer yeah absolutely and i think too just like the amount of information you can learn about deer and specific deer i mean it's it's interesting how one big buck to the next can have a completely different personality and you know their ranges can be completely different you might have one you know, bigger, older, mature buck that likes to kind of roam around a little bit and another one that really just kind of stays tight to specific properties. So, you know, being able to use cameras and, and hunting a lot, you know, just having a lot of like observation sits, I'll call them, where, you know, I'm kind of just learning about the deer and, and, and their travel patterns. So, 
you know, a lot of times the deer that I'm after, like I'm learning about them right now when they're a two year old and they're a three year old. So by the time I'm ready to shoot them when they're four or five years old, I've got a pretty good, you know, understanding of what those deer do. Talk about some of the food plots that you've put in and what you like to do. Yeah, so like, you know, on this property specifically, this is an 80 acre piece of land. It's pretty much all woods. And so, you know, kind of my limiting factors were food and water. So I wanted to make sure and get some food and water here. I have plenty of cover, I have plenty of bedding and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of, you know, took a look at the property. There was a start of a food plot kind of where both of them actually ended up and I just kind of expanded upon those so you know really looking at this area there's a lot of corn there's a lot of beans there's a little bit of alfalfa around and that kind of stuff so my game plan was to go after some late season food to have something for the deer after those corn and beans are gone and um, you know so I started off with some brassica mix it's got some turnips in it um, gives you a good green top so you'll have some nice feed you know a little bit earlier in the year like October time frame but also those bulbs that they love you know this time of year and they'll dig up for them in the snow and whatnot um, so that was kind of my plan here obviously you know the thing about deer hunting is you're always learning this year I learned that maybe we're gonna have an El Nino year and there's no snow and it's 70 degrees out during late season so um, that there's a lot of food out there for them later in the winter um, but you know that's the thing you're always learning and you know next year obviously I'll probably go in with more of a mid-season plot mixed with some of the late season stuff um, but also those plots I did this year with the turnips and there's a tiller radish in there it just really helps break up that soil and it'll pump some nitrogen into the ground um, so it is a good first year plot anyways it's a lot of work putting those in and not just that but you i mean building trails and putting in water holes you, you put a lot of time in didn't you yeah absolutely i mean for me deer season starts the day that the last deer season closes i mean i've already got a whole list made out of you know trees i got to get knocked down to work with a forester on that and i've got more ponds that i need to put in the one pond up here's got needs to be relined because it, it'll dry up when it gets a little bit too dry out there but um, you know, it's a lot of work just maintaining the trails, keeping trees off the trails so you can enter in quietly with the e-bike and that kind of stuff. And moving stands, it seems like every year, no matter how long you hunt a property, your stand always needs to move a little bit. So um, it's just, it's almost endless, you know, with stuff that you could do to finally get your place set up, you know. And then the deer is ever changing, the habitat's ever changing, you know, where we got do a cut in one area, it'll grow up and, you know, it might not be as good of a bedding spot as it's been. So just continually trying to stay in front of the deer and keep your stuff in the right spot. Why do you do it all? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder that myself, <laughs> to be honest. But I mean, it's just a love, love of the land, love for deer hunting. I mean, it's just something I'm so passionate about. And, and I think it's, it's just so rewarding to see the work that you put in and, you know, see the deer out there this winter, you know, and feeding on that and just knowing that, you know, I'm, you know, helping them and helping the herd make them through and, and get other animals around. I think that's just kind of a, a big piece of it is, you know, just kind of the hard work and seeing it pay off. How important do you think it is to have a good relationship with the people that hunt around you? Huge. You know, I mean, I've only got 80 acres. You, you can't hold deer on 80 acres. You can't hold deer on 380 acres. You know, you, you really, you know, if you look at a deer and a big buck, I mean, <laughs> 
prime example, the one that was hit by a car down here. I mean, that deer is a couple miles away from this property. So, you know, they might have a smaller home range in the summertime when they're kind of doing the beans to, to bedding type of deal. But during the rut, these deer will move. So having a relationship with the neighbors is extremely important. I've got great neighbors here. I mean, that's, if you can get into a good neighborhood and, and even get, just get along with your neighbors and work with them, it'll go a long ways. Do people in your uh, your real job, people you interact with in, during your real job, do they uh, are they surprised to learn how much you like to deer hunt? No, I think the the um, secret's out now. Everybody <laughs> knows I'm I'm a huge deer hunter. I mean, I've always been into deer hunting. In fact, I think that's part of the benefit of working in the fishing industry is I get to spend a little bit more time deer hunting than I would if I worked in the hunting industry. So, um, yeah. I mean, you're you're working with Garmin year round, but really the ice fishing is really kind of your wheelhouse, right? Yeah, and it's it's a cool piece. You know, I'm from Minnesota. We came out with some really cool technology with forward-facing sonar, and you know, being up here and being an ice fisherman, I'm like we got it, we got to use this ice fishing. So, you know, that that's been a big focus for me the last few years. But we've grown so tremendously over the years that I, I do get to do a pretty good wide variety of stuff. But ice fishing is for sure my focus. How happy are you that? <laughs> it's it's a late start to ice fishing this year. Very happy. <laughs> keep deer hunting. <laughs> very happy. Yeah, it's this is a very stressful time for me because it's like I'm trying to deer hunt as much as possible, trying to be with the family, but also you know work is picking up. There's ice shows every weekend nowadays. It seems like so, you know, trying to cover all that stuff and be at that stuff, but also being a deer stand, it gets tough. So, do you want to be? Would you want to find more time to maybe manage property for other people? Yeah, absolutely. You know, last year I kind of dabbled in it a little bit. You know, I've, I've got a tractor, and as soon as your buddies find out you have a tractor, then their buddies find out you have a tractor. So <laughs> it's like having a pickup. Absolutely. In fact, I took a, a week of PTO last summer just to go do food plots, and I really enjoy it. And I've, you know, getting the text messages from other people where I went and planted a food plot for them and maybe gave them some ideas on where to put a mock scrape and a water hole and kind of that system I do and see it work for them. I mean, it's just as rewarding, I, th I feel like, as me shooting a deer. It's almost like being a guide in a sense, you know. Mm -hmm. I just, I like doing it. I like seeing other properties. I've gone everywhere from, you know, northern Minnesota, central Minnesota, southeast Minnesota doing plots this past year. And I mean, it's it's super fun. And just being able to learn all these different properties is, is rewarding. You've got a property in Wisconsin, you run into black bears once in a while? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know, like I swear the same, you know, parallel with Minnesota, there's less bears, you know, this far south of Minnesota, but there's a healthy bear population here in Wisconsin. And I even had one that was a little bit angry at me the other night when I was coming out of my stand and um, tried scaring it away and it, it, it wasn't going away. And then even uh, it circled downwind and still came at us. So. Um, Definitely a lot of bears here in Wisconsin, that's for sure, but, um, you know, is what it is. It's weird that there'd be, you're, you're right, we're same, like, they don't come this far south primarily, you know, you might get a spring, yeah. a male in the spring traveling south that's lost, but what? It's weird that they're here. And it's funny though, cause like, you know, even having a property just across the river in Minnesota and a property here in Wisconsin, the landscape is really different. You know, it's all the driftless zone, but we got a lot of basswood and a lot of sugar maples and um, a little bit of oak here. And then you kind of cross the river and you really get into a lot more oak ridges and you start seeing some of those hickories and some of that kind of stuff. It almost feels a little bit more of a Southern, 
um, climate when you cross the river into Minnesota. So <laughs> it's all the cheese over here. I yeah, think. no doubt. Sausage. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Danny. Thanks for the time today. It's a good time. Yeah, no, thank you. This was fun. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.